Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Talk, Mike Kalamaku here. It's spring. It is spring in New York. It's hot. It was 72 degrees yesterday. It feels great. Finally, spring has arrived. I'm wearing a tank top. Though. I just want you to know that. You don't have to know that because it's radio, but that's the kind of weather it is. It's like hot out. feels great. We've got a busy show today. We've got three guests. Um, I'll just do the rundown real fast. Gail, um, not Gail Green, um, although we will talk about that. Uh, Beth Shapiro, Executive Director of City Meals on Wheels is going to be with us in the first segment with Chef Carolina Bazan from Ambrosia Restaurant Santiago Chile. We're going to talk about the great, I guess this is how many years they've been doing this, the 30-somethingth um, Big Meals on Wheels Fet coming up in June. We're going to talk about that. That's Monday, June 6th. We'll do all the prompts for that in a second. Uh, then we're going to talk wine. We're going to shift gears. I've got Mary Gorman McAdams in. She's great. She's brilliant. She's a master of wine, and if that doesn't strike fear in your heart, then holy shit, go back to drinking Yellowtail and thinking it's good. Um, yeah, it's going to be great. She's great. She's brilliant. Uh, we're going to talk about this great event coming up in Harlem, Harlem Eats, and Bordeaux Wines, the new generation, Bordeaux 2.0, or whatever the heck it is. Um, because it is great. It is, there's some just wonderful, wonderful winemakers in Bordeaux. I think there's this mass confusion about the region that's sort of, you know, it's like those first growths that no one can afford anymore in the left bank aristocracy. But that's just like 2% of it. There's like the rest of it's really good juice made from really good grapes. And there's a lot of young blood in there. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to drink some wine, which is going to make me happy. Because then we're segueing into our third guest, Michael Rogak, who is a uh, old, old school Brooklyn. I shouldn't say he's old. I'm old. He's an old school Brooklyn chocolate maker back before chocolate making became artisanal and fancy and something that she needed tattoos and a beard to do. He was doing it in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, of all places, because Brooklyn, a lot of, a lot of New York, a lot of cities, New York, Philadelphia, a lot of cities had traditions of candy making and chocolate making. And Michael still does it, man. He's at it. And I've also got like a surprise guest with him, Daniel Sklar, who has a little place right around the corner called Fine and Raw. That's a cool. Now he's cool. He's young and he's cool, but they have a great connection. So that's three guests, but let's go right to guests. Number one and two, uh, Beth Shapiro. Beth, how are you? Great, Mike. How are you? Good, good, good. So let's let's give a quick. Is this is the event on June sixth? It's Monday, June sixth in Rock Center. Is it sold out already, or are there still tickets? We are not sold out. There are still tickets available and easy to get to. Let's do that a couple of times. So I always like to start a show with that. If people have pencils and paper ready, and we'll do it a couple more times because that's why we're on. Tell us where to go to buy these tickets. Yep. Go to the website citymeals.org C-I-T-Y-M-E-A-L-S dot O-R-G where tickets for K-Rico are right on the homepage. And this is how many years have has Meals been doing this big fet annually? 31 years. I see and we it. are blowing it out this year. We have 50 chefs. Yeah a dozen wineries, more mixologists than you can imagine. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's always been something special. Uh, and I thought it was 31 years. That's what came to my, so like on the tip of my tongue during the intro. Um, and I saw the list of chefs, and I don't want to go on and on about it because it's too long. I mean, if, if I did every chef, we'd chew up the whole 10 minutes. But it's huge. I mean, and guys, it's all over. Guys from the West Coast, like Wolfgang Puck, Charlie Palmer's based in California. He's going to be their New York icons like Alfred Portali, Danielle Boulou, John George, Scotty Cohn. I mean, everyone's going to be there. It's like a who's who of... Um, Famous chefs. You got some great wineries, mixologists, and it takes place Monday, June sixth. It's an outdoor event. It's gorgeous. But and, and this year the celebration is Que Rico, a celebration of Latin cuisine. Um, do, do, is your chef, uh, your guest chef, with you on the phone? Could you give us a shout out for a second? Yeah, Caroline's hey, right how here. How are you? Hey, hey, hey! Welcome, welcome. So tell us, are you going to be in Newark? Are you coming back for this, or you're staying in New York until June sixth? 
no, I'm coming back for for the event. Got you. So you'll be you'll be you'll be with your crew making a dish and serving hundreds, if not thousands, of people that night. Yes, I'm making a classic Chilean dish. What is it? It's a crab with an avocado soup. Sounds good. Sounds good. I want to sign up. It's always on the weekend, and I'm almost never here. Um, so, talk a little bit about. I mean, we've done this show. I think I had you guys on WOR when I was there a few more than a few times. I know I had you last year. I mean, it's such a great idea. So, Gail Green in 1981, she's the food critic of record for New York Magazine, great writer, just gets this idea, like this brilliant idea that you know, there's all these restaurants in New York, and there's always like leftover stuff. And New York has there's needy. There's, I mean, we have trouble with poverty, we have trouble with shelters, we have trouble with homeless, and then there's a sort of other unreported population of just elder shut-ins where depending on which neighborhood you live in I'm in the, I'm on the lower lower east side and you know I see I mean in my building there's like a lot of people well not a lot anymore but you know people over 80 that just don't get out a whole lot and she just organized with restaurants and chefs a way to get food to these people fast forward to today these people like that's going to be me in a few years two million meals a year correct Two million meals a year, a little bit more, 18,000 homebound older New Yorkers who really, as you said, can't get out yep. and shop and cook for themselves anymore. And we are bringing do- you know, food to their doors, a lunch every day, to make sure they have the nourishment and a quick you know, visit to, to stay in the homes that they love, that they've built, the communities that they've lived in their whole lives. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so I, I live in the uh, in, in Co-op Village down the Lower East Side, just, just on Grand Street, that whole section of, there's a, a whole complex that runs from basically um, Clinton all the way down to the FDR, and it's trans, it's transitioning, like all these neighborhoods are, you know, it's going from sort of elderly and Hasidic to young people coming in, because it's one of the last affordable neighborhoods uh, in the city, Um and and yet, so I, I had I, I ran yesterday. It was such a beautiful day. I said I'm going to go down to the river and do a run. Um, I'll then to be 60 this year. My running kind of sucks. But and so I got back to this run. I'm like, oh, that wasn't that wasn't much fun. Uh, and there's an old guy. See, this guy. I don't know how old he is, but you know, he's old, old. And he walks really slowly with a walker. And I'm like, and he's got those big like black shoes on, and he's. And it like takes him forever to like walk from like my building like down the street. And I'm thinking to myself like. Shut the F up, Mike, because in 20 years, that's going to be your exercise. So statistically, over 60% of the people you're feeding are over 80 years old. Is that correct? It is correct. And right now we're feeding over 200 people that are 100 or older. At 23%, almost a quarter are over 90. Yes. Yeah, so it's amazing. I mean, this is really great work, and, and I think without you guys, because again, I can, I can see it. I mean, I know the faces in my building of the you know the older couples, or the or a lot of them aren't even couples anymore. The wife survived the husband more often than not, or maybe the husband survived the wife. But you know, they it's just really hard for them to get out. Winters are brutal; they don't get out much. So you guys are like their lifeline. We are. We are exactly that. A vital lifeline, checking on them, making sure they're getting the food they need. And we are really grateful to the restaurant community for embracing us now as they did in our founding days. And as you said, the the chefs that are coming out, um, of course, from New York and around the country, but also with our theme this year from Latin America with Carolina coming and, and others from, you know, Cuba and Mexico and Puerto Rico, it's a great outpouring of recognition for what we do for these older New Yorkers. Yeah, it's really, really something. I mean, it's really rare. In, our, in, in this town of, oh, you know, ego-driven, solipsistic, selfie-taking, me-me-me types, it's really kind of an anomaly, uh, you know, an outlier to see this kind of generosity where people get together and they recognize this need, and, and, and it grows and it snowballs the way it did. So let me have that website one more time. People are listening out there. And also, just for, you know, if you can't make it to New York, it's a great, you know, we all know that there's not a lot of relief coming from the federal government anymore. Congress is cutting everything left and right. So we have a huge homeless problem in New York. So I get people on this show. We talk about that. We talk about the city shelters and feeding the homeless. And this is in that same wheelhouse of sort of, you know, good for good sake. So you can either donate at this website or you can buy tickets. And if you've never been to one of these FETs, it's really amazing. It's like it's like not just the best chefs in New York City, but in this case, the list is really some of the, the some of the best chefs in America coming out for this. Um, Nick Valenti, who's a really a behind-the-scenes guy. He's the CEO of Patina Group. Uh, which used to be Restaurant Associates. It's kind of a complicated story there, but um, he's going to be the grand host.
host and they're great people. So where where do we buy tickets and, and what are the ticket levels? How's it work? Because I know there's always a couple of tiers. Yep. Uh, citymeals.org to buy tickets. Tickets, uh, general admission starting at $600. People should know 100% of their ticket sales, as with all donations from the general public, 100% go to meal preparation and delivery. Bingo. And it's packed. I mean, we, we're, we're throwing that number around as if, like, there's going to be 50 people there. How many people are you expecting? Oh, no. We'll get, oh, 1,000 yeah. to 1,200 people or so. Yeah, and when the weather's nice, it's nuts. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. And, and if you've never been to Rock Center, it's all tented up, so if the weather does get inclement, it's fine. Uh, but it's it's all around the rink. It's gorgeous. It's You know, it's funny. The uh, When I first got to New York, I, I guess I was just, you know young, and I lived downtown in Tribeca, and I was on I was jogging and on my bicycle. And I didn't really discover Rock Center until kind of my, like, like, I'd been here 25 years. And now it's just become one of my favorite parts of the city. It's just so beautiful. And it's a great place to hold events because you've got a lot of open space space there. Um, so again, that's citymealsplural.org. You can buy tickets there. It's a great cause. All of the proceeds go out to the um, to helping shut in New Yorkers. I mean, this is like, rest assured, this is a lifeline for these people. Um, and it's also like a social thing. I mean, the food's really important because they need food to stay alive, but there's like relationships I know that your, your, your staff and your delivery people have that's, you know, this could be the only visit from an outsider they're getting you know, a couple of days a week. Yes. Exactly. It could be their deliverer might be the only person they see in a given day. Yeah. You know, the majority are living alone, and it is a, a both nourishment for body and soul. Well, thanks so much, Beth. I wish I could give you more time. We're just kind of jam-packed here with today's show. But it, it's June 6th at New York City. That's a Monday, citymeals.org. It's one of the really great causes in this city. Um, and it's it's so thrilling. Because I, I, when I first got I came to New York in 82. And I remember doing some, like, City Meals stuff when I was at Tavern on the Green and some of the bigger venues. And, I, and it's so great to see this this really great cause growing as successfully as it is. Again, 2 million meals a year to 18,000 people, 60% over 80 years old, 23 percent over 90 and some people over 100 yikes keep up the great work thanks so so much thank you mike take care hope to see you soon thank you be well um we can just roll with the next guest g we're good to go we're good to go that's my engineer and i jack innesley yes jack is on the equipment today you you could just you know when when jack's on the the show just tightens up jack's like the guy he's the og here he's the original engineer and we're losing him a little bit because he's going to go out he's got like a band and the band's successful so they're touring europe and california and australia and pretty soon he won't even take my phone calls and he'll change his phone number and told me to speak to his publicist and shit like that but um that's how that's how it is jack let's let's hope let's hope that soon all right anyway jack innesley is on on in the control i'm taking care of this all right my next guest mary gorman mcadams so let me tell you if you don't know what a master of wine is you know what a master psalm is we've had those you know we've had pescaline we've had laura maniac back in the day had fred dex on i worked with roger dagon years ago he's one he's one of the ogs in the city in the country actually one of the early guys so in 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 america today master psalms there's like 120 something 122 126 and about 20 of them are women. Some of them are some of my best friends. Well, Master of Wine is pretty much the damn same thing, maybe even a little tougher in terms of like some of the technical stuff um, and the exam. The only thing they don't do is the service end of it. But basically, you have to be like, like a walking wine genius. So congratulations for passing that test. I get headaches thinking about it. Thank you. I would say more so blood, sweat, and tears and determination rather than any sort of... Uh, uh, pre-given uh, brilliance, but uh, blood, sweat, and tears. But you have, to have, you have to have a really good mind for like. It's almost like that kind of academic skill set, like people that could like how you have to really remember stuff. And I would I'm like I'm really like I'm just kind of like I love drinking wine, and I'm pretty good. You know, with blind tasting, I'm like better than average, which doesn't mean much because none of it. I mean, blind tasting is like virtually impossible. Um, but you know, I'm close. But. Then I'm like, what did you drink last night? I don't know. Chenon Blanc. Who's the producer? I don't know. It was really good. It was from the Loire. It was, it was a Vouvray. It was great. Who's the producer? I don't know. I didn't take a picture of the bottle. I don't know. It was great. I could describe it to you, but let's do all that stuff. But anyway, so we're here today to talk about Bordeaux and the Harlem Eats thing, right? Absolutely. Because you're like the wine sponsor for Harlem Eat Up. We are. This is Harlem Eat Up's uh, second iteration. Uh, Harlem Meetup, for anyone who has not heard of it, uh, was the brainchild of Chef Marcus Samuelson, uh, Harlem resident, uh, restaurateur, and obviously celebrity chef. Um, I, I represent Bordeaux Wines in the uh, United States, and I'm also a Harlem resident. So when I first heard of the, the festival, 
I, I thought, you know, Bordeaux and Harlem really share a lot of similarities. Uh, both are global brands, but the perception um, of both, I felt was very narrow. And I felt that Bordeaux really shared a lot of similarities in terms of both going through renaissance, uh, both actually full of dynamic young people uh, changing things. Uh, and I thought, OK, let's shake things up in terms of the image of Bordeaux, because there is more going on at the affordable end in Bordeaux than at the, as Mike mentioned at the beginning of the programme, that the view of Bordeaux is often at the very high, I guess, um, wonderful wines, but investment grade, very expensive wines that need uh, cellaring, but that represents 2 to 3%. And most of the wines sell under, uh, 90% of the wines sell under 50 and a good sort of 85 under $25. Um, so that was one of the, one of the reasons. Um, and we also felt that uh, that with the eclectic uh, cuisine uh, in Harlem, uh, the soul cuisine, a lot of traditional, but also very eclectic, a lot of uh, different influences. But this was a really great opportunity to expand the perception of the usability of Bordeaux uh, and that you can have something simple, like a slider, like a you know, mac and cheese, like collard greens. And there's a Bordeaux to go with all of those dishes. And your point is, is you know, pretty well made. It's, it's interesting because I, I hadn't made that connection, but it's an obvious one. So I've been to New York City, too. And Harlem, you know, Harlem had its moment in like the 30s, 40s, 50s with tons of artists. And there was mingling of cultures and Sinatra. And there was white people up there. And it was, it was really a vibrant music scene. And then it kind of, you know, just deteriorated, fell off the rail like a lot of New York neighborhoods did. Um, people moved. There was kind of reverse gentrification. And then now this amazing city of New York just keeps expanding and neighborhoods that were formerly written off have become the place to be like where we're sitting today which is Absolutely. the middle of nowhere with the, the world headquarters of Boar's Head Meats across the street it's like <laughs> that's beautiful um, and Bordeaux I remember visiting Bordeaux in the 80s and 90s and it sucked I mean it was a gray town it was ugly like you really didn't want to stay there you wanted to stay in the small towns outside of Bordeaux yeah. there was no advantage to being in Bordeaux the, the, it has this beautiful riverfront but then there was a lot of um, boat traffic and warehouses on the river so the waterfront wasn't not so I fast forward I hadn't been to Bordeaux in 20 plus years and I was there this past fall with Capiello and his crew same hotel same week um and I was there too. And you were there too. And I was like, "What? When? Did, what happened to this place? It's like it's completely reinvented itself. Like the build, like Juppé's done an amazing job. He's yeah. the mayor. It's clean. It's white. It's gorgeous. It's young. I mean, it's one of the really few French cities that I've been in, and I aside from Paris, where you it just feels alive. Because a lot of the old French towns, just I hate to say it, they just kind of feel eh, like there's nothing much going on. You know, the Montpellier is kind of dead, even though it's a student town. But Bordeaux is just like kids, and it's stoked. And that new that new tram, that electric tram. And um, so, talk about Bordeaux wines. So, we'll start with the left bank only because we kind of have to because I want to get to the right bank in a hurry. So, let's start on the left bank. So, those are the if I if I can and correct me anytime I'm wrong. Absolutely. Step on step on me. So, again, that's where the a lot of the first growths are. The vast majority, with with one exception. Um, Correct. We, we think of Margot as being the kind of, you know, that's it. Uh, uh, the Medoc is expanding a little bit. And then you, you these, you know, the really big, extremely well-built, sometimes overbuilt sh- wines. But Cabernet Sauvignon is the grape. Merlot is a secondary grape. Some people are throwing in Cab Franc, some Petit Trudeau. Yeah. Right. The, so that's that style. So those are the bigger, gnarlier, the ones that require more aging. And then you slide over to the right bank, and suddenly there's this shift where Merlot becomes the primary grape in the blends most of the time. It does. And I mean, that's uh, historically is due to the, the terroir, the soil. Right. Uh, in the Medoc, and particularly in the, the top communes where the top first growths and second growth chateau are, you've got more gravelly soils, right. and that's more suitable for Cabernet Sauvignon because it's well-draining and Cabernet is fussy and doesn't like its feet getting wet. Um, and on the right bank, you have, I mean, we're generalizing here, but on the right bank, you have more uh, clay over limestone. Right. Again, it's a bit simplifying it, but you have more clay and limestone, which is a soil that is much more suited to Merlot. And you do have gravelly outcrops uh, on the right bank, and you have some Cabernet Franc. So Merlot on the right bank with the secondary grape, not being Cabernet Sauvignon, but Cabernet Franc. And the wines tend to be... Uh, 
less tannic, more fruit forward. Like, I mean, Merlot, it's just, I, I, I never saw that silly movie, but it's, it just gave this grape varietal this horrible name. And I'm like, how could you do that to like such a noble grape? I mean, this is stupid. So I guess talking about something in California that I'm not familiar with. So I'll just leave it at that. But but when I drink, and I drink mostly right bank Bordeaux, you know, you, you get that sense of it, they drink wonderfully young. They do. They're, they're more, more fleshy, yep. more sexy and voluptuous. Yep. And yep. with Merlot, you have fleshier and more plump tannins. So again, you have that less austerity. Um, and then the Cabernet Franc has a little freshness. But they are. They're easier to, um, to drink earlier. I mean, they still have aging potential, even the modestly priced wines. But they are, yeah, they're, they're, they're smoother, more voluptuous on your palate, uh, just easier to, to go down. And a, and a lot of smaller farmers, because we think of, you yeah. know, when you drive through that, whatever that road is, mm-hmm. the Route de Chateau, you know, it's, oh, oh, really? You know, it's like Lynchbosch and Smith Olivier, all that, well, Smith Olivier's other side, but you know, all, all the big, all those big names, and it's, it's kind of off-putting, because these Chateaus are gorgeous, and the, the this gentle rolling hills, and lots of gravel, and it's just oh my gosh. Then you get to the right bank, and it's just like more trees, more nature, more stuff alive, it's and more then polyculture, s- more polyculture, and and also smaller vineyard. People with you know four, five, six hectare, yeah. and that's a family business. And I know last time we were there, we were visiting it was during the crush, and you know there was you know guys, husband, wives, families with purple hands and purple teeth, and yeah. doing the manual pump down, and they were bringing grand. I'm like. Oh, that now this looks like something I recognize. Yeah. And that is that is such a fact. And, and unfortunately, when a lot of wine professionals visit Bordeaux, they only see the Medoc and the Grand Chateau, and that's that perpetuates the view of Bordeaux. Um, two weeks ago, I was in Bordeaux, and I was in this gorgeous small chateau, Chateau Coutet, on in Saint Emilion, and it was wonderful uh, to hear about how this, the owner's three aunts um, owned the property, and they did not get electricity until 1985. <laughs> And the guy still has the flip cell phone. It's just <laughs> wonderful. And that is not the no. the public uh, perception of Bordeaux. But you no. have these, you know, even smaller than sort of 10 hectares, 2 hectares, 3 hectares, 4 hectares. Uh, family owned, family, more importantly, family worked. And as you said, the, you know, these... Uh, the farmers. Wine, yeah, wine stained hands, you know, um, not perfect teeth, you know, just yeah, real people. The, the guys we would visit on the left bank, you know, would be like the, the eighth generation and yeah. the son shows up in his Range Rover and his yeah. 60,000 thousand dollar rolex you know let's go to the vineyards you know i'm really a farmer and i'm looking at this guy like you got your manicure like yesterday dude like farmer what you leave that st- no socks the gucci loafers yeah. i'm like no, i'm not buying it it's funny i mean it's that's it's sort of like like that connecticut like biffy muffy culture dropped in yeah in it's, france by the way i mean something water. that i've often sort of i guess these the uh, i guess metaphor uh, is that you know in bordeaux uh, bordeaux is very well known for its haute couture mm. and it does that really well but most of the, most of the wine is ready to wear or ready to drink uh, which is a very very different product so you brought something today it looks like we oh my god do. we have three rosés we have indeed um and perfect it's spring and it's like 72 degrees yeah, and it's tank top weather and all as right you know how oh, we have something we with bubbles so this is like a cremant of some It's a cremant. Uh, and again, you know, most people are surprised when you say that Bordeaux makes sparkling wine. So they, they are one of the seven appellations in France to make a cremant wine. So it's a traditional method made in the same way that right. champagne is, bottle right. fermented. Um, and, you know, the wonderful thing about this wine, we're, we're tasting a Giants Rosé, Cuvée de l'Abbé. This retails for about $12. Incredible. Crazy. Incredible. And the, the grapes are? Uh, this is 100% Merlot. Uh, this is the rosé. In the white version, it's uh, a blend of Semillon and Merlot. 12 blinds. See, it's crazy, yeah, right? Yeah. So there was, there was an article this week in the newspaper, in the Times, about like, I live in Cape May when I don't live in Manhattan. That's my, it's my beach house and my weekend house. And there's an article about like Cape May wineries. And I'm like, I, and, and I know, I don't want to shoot but they are, they're trying down there. There's, you know, they're better that than other things. And it's, it's nice to see viticulture in America. So I was thinking, do you have them? I said, you know, honestly, shh. I can buy such good wine in New York City from fifteen to thirty dollars a bottle from all over the old world. That you know, I don't need to spend like forty dollars a bottle for somebody's experiment in South Jersey. I mean, I can Loire, Alsace, right bank of Bordeaux, Portugal. I mean, Italy. It's crazy. This is delicious, Absolutely, isn't it? And uh, when you think about how I guess democratized sparkling wine is, um, I really hope that more people discover that Bordeaux makes sparkling wine, uh, and it's on the increase. Where could we buy this in New York? Is, this, is there any distribution? Is it like really, really tiny? Would Aster have this? Um, I, Who knows? Sorry, I don't know what store, but it's, it's widely distributed. Uh, the importer is Baron Francois. 
Um, on Wine Searcher, if you look it up, it's it, there's many stores that. Come yeah, Baron Francois. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. It's a, yeah. That's a good, good little. Yeah. Good little boutique. Uh, but this is the probably the the most well known uh, sparkling producer, cremant producer in Bordeaux, uh, Giants. So, what are you pairing this with? Not, and we have the usual suspects of, you know, salumi, the stuff before the meal, the, the roast beets, the salads. Cheeses would be fine with this, I think. Uh, yes, cheeses. Uh, I think some of the sort of uh, semi-hard, semi-semi-soft right. cheeses. Through the dry, crumbly yeah. ones. Um, I also think this would be lovely with a, like a salad niçoise or some kind of summer salad where you've got some fish or some meat. Uh, I think also with um, small little fries. I would, that's, that's what I love this. Calamari. Yeah. Uh, I think calamari. Like, would, what do they call it in the Frito Misto in Italian? Yeah, Frito uh, Misto. Frito right. Misto. Uh, calamari. Uh, it's always, crisp. It's yeah. light. It's got yeah. bubbles. It's yeah. great with fried food. Yeah. It's delicious. I think also with Actually, eggs. Right. Eggs. You know, sort of brunch. Yeah, I don't eat. I don't eat brunch. I always have trouble with that time of day and that. Plus, I was a restaurant guy. We hate chefs. Chefs hate brunch. brunch. Well, I'm sure there's lots of listeners, hopefully, that do like brunch. Well, they know it's good money. No, no, everyone go to brunch. Restaurants love brunch. They love it because it's big it's Saturday and Sunday, a dead time, and, and you're making a fortune. This is delicious. All right, I have to finish this. We only have one glass each. Hold on. Bottoms up. And it's and it's dry. You know, I think that's that's nice as well. There's a uh, you know, it's a brute style. So on, on it's on the lease for a year. You think? What do you guess? Um, I actually spoke to the to Giants in in, in Bordeaux uh, during the week just to verify, and they said about eighteen months. 18 so months. that's significant Good. for yeah. you know the the minimum uh, the legal minimum for Cremont is is a year, right. and here we have uh, almost uh, two years, well, a year and a half to two. All right, this next rosé. So the next one. We need a dumping glass. We don't have one. Use an empty water glass. Okay, so now we're moving on to um, rosé. And this is the rosé de Clos Floridin. Uh, and this is actually from the well, left bank, south of left bank. It's made in the Grave area. So that Which you normally be, think of white wine. So normally thinking of uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Semillon. And uh, this property, Clos Floridin, um, they do actually make, they make a white wine. They also make a red wine. And since 2004, they've been making a rosé. Um, the name here, um, maybe some listeners uh, have come across the name of uh, Professor Denis de Bourdieu, who's probably the most, one of the most famous enologists in Bordeaux. And uh, very much responsible for the whole revolution and evolution of dry white winemaking. This is his uh, property. And the name Flory Den is a combination of his name and his wife's name. He's Dennis and she's Florence. He's a diplomat. This yes, is good. He'll stay it. married for a while. This yes. is a smart move. Smart and put move. her name first. Share the love. Yeah. Her name first. <laughs> so this is a lovely wine. It's a blend of... It's a rosé made through... Um, Maceration, um, and it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and a little one percent of Malbec. Yeah, because you can have that's right. We don't think of Malbec for Bordeaux, yeah, but it's, it's one of the Bordeaux varietals. Yeah. Uh, interesting. When I was in Bordeaux two weeks ago, um, unsolicited, I actually ended up tasting about five varietal Malbec wines. Straight Malbec. Straight Malbec. Uh, on the roll from small producers on the right bank, a lot of them in the Cote area. Uh, so does Malbec's back. Well, it's, you know, there's people that, I mean, that Argentinian stuff, people go crazy for that yeah. wine. I don't like it. It's just some, something about the American oak. It just feels like overbuilt wines to me. Um, well, I don't want to say anything negative no, about you, any other wine. but Me uh, neither. I think, but I never ordered. I've yeah, been, I just say, yeah. every time I have, they like, there's this, I'm sure there's great producers. I should never yeah. say, because there's, there's always exceptions to the rule, but they just seem to be made from a certain kind of market, a certain kind of palate. And to me, they're just like, like. Like hammers. I think also it, it, the popularity increased so much that then it, you know the wine tend to be made in sort of higher volumes, uh, more kind of mass market style. Um, but yeah, I guess back back to this rosé. Um, dry rosé is another increasing category within rosé uh, within within Bordeaux. Um, in fact. Um, I just discovered two days ago that uh, Caroline Strong, who's the wine director at Oriol, uninitiated mm. uh, and certainly wasn't us trying to influence her. She's holding a um, a Bordeaux rosé uh, tasting at Oriol this evening. Holy mackerel! Yeah. yeah, just Bordeaux rosé, uh, which is very interesting. So that's that's actually that's really interesting. Yeah, because um, you you think she'd be in Provence or something, one of the normal suspects yeah. rosés, but just Bordeaux. Yeah, she had she visited Bordeaux last year and just said she was so taken by well all Bordeaux the city, but also um, the rosé wines that and she's she decided. One of these to, young psalms too, yeah, right? She is. Yeah, yeah. I think I had her on the show before. She's, it's crazy. Like she's just like. Yeah. I remember she got that job. She was like, "Really? 
Really? Yeah. Charlie, you know, it's kind of a big wine program. And Charlie was out in Heidelsberg, and yeah. that Oriole is kind of like that kind of one of those big baller lists, yeah. deep and expensive. And, and the other Bordeaux Rosé, you know, they're not expensive wines. So most of them uh, out there, and there is an increasing number of them available uh, in the U.S. market, and certainly around the metro New York area. Uh, price ranges range from, you can buy Chateau Tassin for about, again, $12, up to about $20. Uh, this wine here, Rosé de Floridaine, retails a, a little bit on the higher side, about $18. But I mean, still, that's kind of like everybody's yeah, budget. I mean, yeah. it's kind of hard to go below that and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and find anything interesting. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, particularly with, you know, so many people interested in rosé, it's nice to have something a little bit different and not kind of go to the default Provence. Right. Uh, but, you know, try uh, Bordeaux. And the last one, look at the color on that. Yeah. Now, that one, I, I poured red wines that were less that were less red than this particular Bordeaux. This Almost. third wine uh, is a special category of wine that's made in Bordeaux called Claret. Uh, and it's C-L-A-R-E-T, which is the old British word for like... Your, your easy-drinking, light claret wine. Um, and it's basically a wine that visually looks uh, halfway between a red and a rosé. Yeah, right. Um, it's, a, it's a wine that many of the Bordelais sort of, I guess, mm. discounted for many years and kind of made a little bit for their own consumption. Um, but are now beginning to realize that actually this is a wine kind of for our times, particularly with the way people eat a little more lightly these days. So you have a little tannic grip in the, in the wine. Uh, so there's a little bit of um, extraction of tannin, not that much, just enough to sort of anchor the wine and kind of break down a little bit of protein. Um, lovely, isn't it? Fantastic. No, I've been making faces the whole time. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, my eyebrows are like, the nose is super beautiful, yeah. like super beautiful fruit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always think of this um, <sighs> Thanksgiving, kind of poultry, veal, um, any sort of light meats. Don't say that. This is like... This is like a five-day week wine. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking this can go with like this would be perfect with dinner tonight. No, this is yeah. great. Pasta. I think uh, anything. And you're right. Has just enough tannins to sort of hold up against like lighter meats. Yeah. So I mean, you could do this with fish, and it would be like a bank shot, no problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Vegetables for sure. Yeah. But then you can get into like pork and chicken as long as the sauce is right. Just gorgeous, yeah, gorgeous. And that lovely sort of medley of, of, of fruit. And I think that's what's interesting about um, a lot of these sort of um, affordable Bordeaux that they are more approachable in terms of the fruit in the wine and more pure, fresh fruit, but yet they still retain that soul, that anchor of I'm from somewhere. What are the but, varietals here? Um, this is 100% Merlot. Uh, and again, this is a uh, family property. I think this is for five generations. Um just lovely property, making lovely wines. And they make this is they make this plus a full line of of yeah. Blends. I mean, they're located in the Ante du Mer, so they make uh, a, a Bordeaux. Um, they make a, a white Bordeaux as well. So they make a, a range of wines. In retail mid twenties, uh, this retails thirteen dollars. I mean. Damn, what can you gee? get for thirteen dollars? Nothing actually. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. That's like I kind of don't go yeah. that down down. I kind of a point where I look because now they have like the shelves, so like yeah. the thirteen dollar bottles and like the eighteen dollar bottles are here. And you get to the twenty fives, and, and at some point you're into like the, the more expensive stuff. But yeah, I just I've kind of written that off. This is crazy, yeah. crazy good. I think that's actually a, again a perception that we hope that more people will get over is again the old perception that Bordeaux was brilliant and expensive, or cheap and nasty. And then I think when somebody sees $13, think, maybe. But these are wonderful wines. And you know, the more that we're tasting people on wines, they just say, you know, really in terms of value uh, and quality, it, there's really nowhere as, as good as Bordeaux at the moment. Yeah, there's no way I'm blind tasting this. I'm guessing it's $13. Right? Yeah, I'd be happy. I'd like, pay 25 for this and be like, yeah, yeah. that's fine with me. Yeah. It's like, it's delicious. It's well-made. There's doesn't have a lot of fault. It's simple. But it's, the, it's super food forward, super easy. You can see yeah. a pairing with a ton of food. You know, throw it in the fridge for an hour or so before you drink it. It's bloody yeah, good. Yeah, really, really good. And, and so how are you doing the Harlem Eats thing? How's that going to work? Or, oh, or eat Harlem. What's it called? I keep getting the name wrong. Harlem Eat Up. Harlem with an exclamation up. mark at the back. Yeah, exclamation um, mark at the back. Well, Bordeaux Wines is so everywhere, so, all over it. Right. So if you're eating food there, you're going to be preparing it inevitably with Bordeaux. Bordeaux Wines. We started okay. actually, we decided this year to go beyond the festival itself. So we started a Bordeaux by the Glass program with 11 participating restaurants throughout the month of May. And for every glass of Bordeaux wine sold. Uh, Bordeaux Wines donates a dollar to City Meals on Wheels. 
and the reception among the restaurants. We should have told them that before. God damn, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. So, um, and that has started out really well. I think it's a great way to get wine into the glass, glass into hand, hand towards mouth. And um, then at the festival uh, itself, Bordeaux is the official wine sponsor of all the dine-ins. The dine-ins are um, special device, special devised dinners with. Um, there's 14 restaurants participating. Um, you know. Marcus Salmon's Ginny's, Red Rooster, uh, Sylvia's, the Cecil, Vinatria, etc. And each in each restaurant, um, the resident chef pairs up with the guest celebrity chef, and the celebrity chefs would be obviously uh, Marcus, uh, Daniel Boulou, Bobby Flay, Emeril Gasse, um, Jack Torres, um, J- uh, John Waxman. Yeah, so many names are there. Uh, so we've worked with each restaurant in pairing Bordeaux wines with each course. So over 60 diff- different Bordeaux wines will be poured between Tuesday night and Friday night at these dine-ins. Then on Saturday and Sunday, the festival proper, which is a big extravaganza of flavour and taste in Morningside Park. Um, Bordeaux Wines is going to have a bar avant, a wine bar, uh, in the main tented ticketed area where we'll pour 12 different Bordeaux wines each day. In addition, we have our own little uh, standalone pavilion where we will be uh, running mini Bordeaux edutainment wine classes uh, for a half hour on the hour, Saturday and Sunday. Holy mackerel. And uh, Daniel Boulou, uh, in the unticketed area, the free area, um, there will be a lot of celebrity chefs doing cooking demos and Daniel Boulou will be using Bordeaux wines in, in, in his and then we'll also have um, border wine selling at a concession stand, um, a, a rosé, a sparkling, a white, and a red. Um, and the, well. date, the dates are? The dates, uh, the actual festival in Morningside Park is Saturday and Sunday, May 21st, 22nd. Next week. The dine-ins, next weekend. Next weekend the dine-ins, the public dine-ins are Friday night, May 20th. And if you go to harlemeetup.com uh, events, uh, there are still some tickets available for some of the dinners. And there's some sort of private dinners in the restaurants on Wednesday and Thursday. And then uh, if you can't make to the festival, um, you know, an ancillary uh, activity we're doing, uh, we've teamed up with 10 retailers across the city to hold um, tastings and store promotions. Um, sort of this weekend, weekend gone by, this coming weekend, the following weekend, so that there's every opportunity to try a border wine. Hey, you know, I... I've been doing these shows for years, and I've been sort of in a sad way saying that I, up until recently, it's, I think that the, the Bordelais, for a, a variety of reasons, um, kind of dropped the ball for the American market. And, you know, in the 90s and, and aughts, just kind of were looking elsewhere or didn't give an F. And I'm out all the time, three, four nights a week, eating at a restaurant, and I'm a wine guy and looking at wine lists. And it's, I, I, we would just be shocked to be going. I mean, restaurants have these great wine lists and like zero Bordeaux or like one, you know, maybe Bordeaux Blanc. And I'm like, what? It's like they've lost a generation of wine drinkers that I think the, the, the goal is to get them back. It is. I mean, yeah. it's a real case of you snooze, you lose. Yeah. And I think that. But they did have, for yeah, a long I think, time. You know, and I sort of, um, you know, when I'm now working with Bordeaux, I think we have to take some responsibility of taking the eye off the, the ball. This is the most competitive wine market in the, in the entire world. Yeah. Everybody wants to play in the sandbox. So yep. if you want to be noticed, you have to make an effort. Yeah, and it got really, and the competition really got tight. I yeah, mean, every, yeah. I have songs on the show all the time. We talk about like New York being, yeah. friends of my wine coming from Paris are like, how do you have this wine? You have this, have you have this wine at 10 bells. Or have this wine at, I can't buy this wine in France. How do you have this? Because yeah. everybody wants to be in our market. Like New yeah. York is, if, if, you have a, if you have an allocation, your number one market in America New is New York it's City. New York. Yeah. Then the competition's just up their game and, yeah. and it's time for Bordeaux to jump. Yeah. So I think there's an opportunity because, you know, it's been sort of, I guess out of vogue for so long. Yep. Now, you know, hopefully there's the opportunity for it to become the next best, next best thing. Thanks so much. I'm going to get you back on the show at some point too to talk about your journey becoming a, a master of wine because that's that's always fascinating to me, like what led you in that. But that's a show for another Sheer day. Sheer madness. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, I, I always like people's stories are great. Thanks yeah. so much for coming. Thank on. you so much, Mike. Pleasure and again, that Harlem that's next weekend. That's New York City Harlem Eat Up. It's fantastic. Mary Gorman McAdams been my guest. Um, stay tuned for Michael Rogak and Daniel Sklar right after this little spot that is for the people to make the show possible. Thank you.
great wine regions of the world historically. I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy too. And as a chef growing up, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So the Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Simeon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. Here we go. Welcome back. Michael Rogax with me in the house from Joe Mart Chocolate. And we have a surprise guest who I'm going to introduce in a couple of minutes because there's like a connection here and we, we have to do it that way. How did you and I ever, ever meet for the first time? Do you remember Actually, Yeah, I do. Actually, you found my cousin Bonnie when you were in Hawaii. and you That's the connection. And you found, I think, my card in your jacket about two years later. And we tried <laughs> to, you called me up. And I'm not sure if I ignored you the first time or you ignored me when <laughs> I called. Fine. It took us Either about way. a year of back and forth to finally get together, and then we became movie stars. That's crazy, because you've been 70, 70 years in the business, Joe Marchocco. My father, right. My father started in 1946. So talk about, I mean, I, all this New York history stuff. So I, I grew up in Philly, moved here when I was in my mid-20s, 1982. I don't know how old I was, but it's somewhere around there. But I remember being here, 82, January. Um, but, like, Philly had, like, Goldenberg's Peanut Chews. I mean, cities used to make stuff. Like, there used to be, like, Candies made in like Boston and New York and Brooklyn and parts of it, and and so Brooklyn had like a chocolate scene going on for years, like like candy makers. Like old there, school. Was, there was always a lot of chocolate people in Brooklyn. There always were a lot. And when my, my father told me the story, when he opened up in '46, he opened up on Franklin Avenue off of Eastern Parkway. So he had a retail store there and a factory was on East New York Avenue. Where he had the retail store, there were five other chocolate guys within one block. Within one block. And, you know, unfortunately for them, we're the only ones who survived that era. But what got interesting, when I joined my father in the 70s, people my age did not want to get their hands dirty, literally. And there was no desire to carry on family traditions. Right. So the generational thing, that was the shift. Like, we don't want to do this anymore. So I was the young guy then, but my contemporaries were my father's age. Because no one young was going into the business. And was it also, 
I mean, in terms of market forces, was it like that hegemonic effect of like Mars and Hershey and the idea that cheap drove everything and prepackaged versus... Well, in, in the 70s, so in, in that era in New York, the big players were Lofts and Bartons and Barracini and Schrafts. And when we were having that great recession in the 70s, the first lesson I got from my father was, he says, you know, we have to make a decision. Either... Uh, maintain quality mm. or maintain price. Mm. He said, what should we do? The hell do I know? And basically, the decision was we're going to... He was always afraid of prices. And I said, let prices go wherever they have to. And, you know, historically, that might have been the first smart thing I ever said. Because all the other companies folded. Cut corners, cut corners, cut corners. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, in those... You're talking about an era, though, 1976, when I got started, 75... The retail price of chocolate in New York, good chocolate, was five bucks a pound. That was it. Yeah, I think that. So I'll be 60 this year, and it seems like I was born, like, right in the heart of, like, the dark ages of the American food scene, like the late 50s. So my grandmother was an Italian immigrant. She was an amazing cook and housekeeper and just, like, I don't know how how she did all the things that she did. You know, the laundry in the house and then clean that, and the house was spotless. You could eat it. And and every meal was cooked from scratch, and and my grandfather would forage for stuff in the golf courses of Philadelphia. And then my mom's generation, my mom and her her sister, none of them wanted to have any anything to do with that, right? And, and I noticed in our town, in, in West Philly, like the small butcher stores, like we didn't really go, there was small butcher stores, small baker, they all kind of went out of business in the 60s because there was just this move towards, if you think about that era, 60s into the 70s, it was like white bread, American cheese, McDonald's, convenience. Um, TV dinners were big. I mean, people used to buy these freaking, uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy loved TV dinners. Like I think one of the first year that Stover's were ever did that Thanksgiving TV dinner, like she was like a big fan of that. They Convenience ruled, right? And then price Absolutely. drove everything, right. which would have just put you guys between a rock and a hard place. Right. So, But you know, we always kind of did our own thing. We, we stayed small by choice, and we looked to focus on making a kick-ass product. And, that and you was really, still do, and it's all, it's from scratch. It's so. crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. like the Willy Wonka chocolate effect. Is it, is it what, middle? What, what's the neighborhood? You, what, uh, what's your name for Marine this? Marine Park. Marine Park. Marine Park. We're, so we're in North Brooklyn, so we're, we're way the hell away from everything. Yeah, I remember driving fine. there once. We were like, where am I? I have no idea. I've never been here right. before. No idea. And, and your daughter, so at this point, you're kind of the last of the Mohican in your shop. You're still there. You've got a regional store in the front. Yep. You do wholesale your mailing. Yep. And I know you might. I, it's funny that I bumped into you in my other home, Cape May, New Jersey, right. last weekend, where I guess I somehow Louise's, there was some connection right, between you and right, me right. and them yep. that kind of got you down there. Um, now, this guy across the table, Daniel. Daniel Sklar, so, so funny. You have this great little boutique chocolate place in this neighborhood, around the corner from here. Yeah. Fine and raw. Yeah. But your background was something else. You weren't a chocolate guy by like destiny. You kind of like fell into this how? Yeah, I was. I was a. a I call it a financial analyst. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, and I, I mean, I, I came to New York to to do that. Become master of the universe. Work hard, play hard, do that whole thing. Um, I mean, the the play hard part was fun. Yeah. Always. Yeah, I give you that. Um, and then. Um, yeah, I left that world and just like uh, found, found myself as a chef, and then and then started playing around with chocolate and and, and realized how obsessed I was. And how did you? Because the reason you're here, first time I the first time I had Michael on the show, and Mike feel you guys. I'm going to play guys off each other. Yeah. First time I had Michael on the show, I didn't know you, and so yeah. Jimmy Carbone was with me. I know Jimmy for years, and Jimmy's got a, a show here, and he's got a great little Jimmy's Forty Three in Manhattan on Seventh Street. And we so we sat at that table, and we all had a big dinner afterwards. And, we, and you, I don't know who's this guy. Like, what was this guy? I mean, you were pretty quiet because I guess with three of us, there's just not a lot of air <laughs> no, left in no, the no, fucking room. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's guy. So, yeah. but how? So, so you decided to get into chocolate. How did you ever? Connect with Michael yeah, so Rocha. I was I was making the chocolate in my in my loft in Williamsburg, super underground, gorilla style, and then you know, oh, oh, yeah, obviously the idea is to to get legit at some point, so move towards that. And uh, I, I wanted to buy this chocolate machine, mm-hmm. and I called up uh, Hilliards, the company at the time, and I said, "Hey, can you give me a reference? Uh, I, want, I want to buy um, one of your machines. I always just want to speak to someone who's used it." They sent me over to Michael. Hit Michael up on an email. Hey, uh, Hilliards gave me your 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 details. Can I come speak to you? He goes, uh, it's, the, it's the middle of Valentine's Day. 
come, come, come back in a year, <laughs> a month. Um, so cool. So I came, so um, a month went by, went out oh. to his shop, met Michael, saw him doing his, his whole thing. I mean, a, a beautiful space, amazing, like old school, right. just like tactile, sensuous. Like he's got his grandfather's uh, candy cutters there and the works. Uh, yeah, and I, t- I was like, hey, dude, look, um, I'm doing this thing. So, yeah, so he tells me he's doing this thing. I said, where are you going to do this? He says, in my loft. I said, you can't make chocolate in your house. It just doesn't work. He says, so what am I supposed to do? I said, well, if you want to, you can show me what you're doing. And maybe I'll make your stuff for you. And I think he tried me out. He let me make 100 bonbons for him. Yeah, yeah. And like an idiot, then I deliver because I like the guy. I don't know why I like him. I, I end up going <laughs> I from parties. Marine Park to... Yeah, yeah, it must have been. It was the accent. I end up going from Marine Park to Williamsburg to this loft to, ah, oh, this is what's going on. And we, we did some stuff together. We had fun. Yeah. He learned about, a little bit about my world. I learned a ton about his world. And um, I think we helped each other out a lot. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's great to see. I mean, I love this sort of generational thing because yeah. it's, you know, you, you're kind of, it reminds me a little bit like the Russ and Daughters story where, you know, Mark's running Russ and Mark is who's the, the Fetterman who's running that business during those years when nobody wanted to come into his business. Yep. And it was like a long stretch in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And he watched that neighborhood, which is now, uh, my God, you know, could it be any hotter? The, you know, when Houston Street in the Lower East Side was just like shitsville. I mean, you could have bought those buildings down, you know, on Stanton. You could have oh, bought those buildings for $50,000 in their nine. They, they were giving them away yep. and he sat through that time until finally you know his uh, well, the, the, the kid came back and then his daughter came back Nikki later on but mm-hmm. he was like enduring and then they're kind of passing the baton and now we now when we think like, you know, there's a whole generation that like the younger kids they even think about chocolate the word artisanal and right. chocolate are attached yeah. and then Brooklyn is almost attached to that right. and then you get like the Mast Brothers picture these you know bearded artsy tortured guys making it but there really is this great comeback thing and you guys kind of are that generational bridge yeah it, it's all there and people are loving it i mean a lot of people don't even understand what's going on because look let's be honest uh there's still a lot more hershey bars being sold than anything that we guys or the masters are ever going to do but people are kind of hearing these words they don't know what artisanal mean but they use it they don't know what organic means they use that they have no clue what fair trade means but there's a curiosity going on. there's a buzz going on so you have to listen to your customers. So we end up doing things that I never thought could sell, but people want us to try stuff, so we do stuff. You know, and we're learning, we're paying attention, and but at the end of the day, if our customers like what we do, we all win. And you have, in your story, you're like making these like classic trope American candies. Like, was it's not marshmallow? What's that stuff you well, make? I, I make my own marshmallow. It's like from scratch. scratch, which is like kind of like if you've right. never seen that done with the oh, big. It's the best. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And then that's yeah. that big cutter from his grandfather, like that big yeah. thing that so goes cool. cutting and then yeah. the rolling stuff, right. and then and then you have one where you roll like what is it? Is the it marshmallow? Roll. So it's marshmallow and caramel. Then after you roll it, the next day. You dip it in fresh caramel, then you roll it in pecans. Have you seen this thing? It's like ridiculous. Yeah, the size of like a small football. It's I like mean, it's like it's yeah. it's so delicious. It's like don't get me near that because the diet's like out the window. It's just sort of want to just well, then you better not open up any of the boxes I brought. Don't even bother. And your store, so Michael's got this full-on candy store, which yep. still, which is like this old-school throwback. So kids can come in after school and in the afternoons, and if they have money, right? yeah, if, if they have money, yeah, and and buy like or individual credit. pieces and stuff. And then you have your stop around the corner, which is kind of like this modern version. And you're just you're just selling. Well, you have to, you, when did you start doing truffles? Did you always have truffles, or I never noticed? Yeah, they were, they were always there. Okay, I just yeah. buy the bars, I guess, because yeah. I'm a more of a bar guy. No, I mean the bars are actually well. What we push to get the truffles that's more rare, yeah. You, have, you really have to search them out. It's like you, we, we're known more for our bars, and actually, the actually our chunkies are, are what people are into, and which is which is a giant bought, truffle. I bought two of them today. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, he's got a coconut thing. This coconut. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the item. And I know that's. I mean, <laughs> I, I I I I stole it from Michael slash he gave no, it to no, me I'll, or. No, I, <laughs> No, you, well, we got, we, I've we got can, one in here, and I've got give, one in the Cape Maine. Let's, let's give credit where it's due. We, we were talking about how to... He was doing these, these two bonbons, right? The two truffles. Yeah. And it was a good item. And there was something about it I thought we could do better. So one day, I went over to the loft, and I said... My I parents were there. Right, your parents were yeah. there. And I basically made a triple size one. 
Yeah. Because I'm thinking about saving labor, making a better product, people buying one. And he was a little, you know. Yeah, I was like, eh. He was, well, it wasn't his original idea. So he was kind of cool about it. Yeah. And he, and he says, this is delicious. I said, cool. You want to do it? I don't know. And then, like a month later, we we tried it out, and yeah. it became a thing. Yeah. And that's that shape. That's the ones you're that's selling exactly, now. Yeah, yeah. Same I mean, because it is. You put it right. It's like a triple size truffle. Right. It's, right. And but it's in the shape of a chocolate ball, which is what everyone wants. Everyone wants a chocolate ball. But it's ball. a little taller. Yeah. Right. I was a little thick. Because I remember, yeah. like, it's kind of like, what is this thing? But because I, I, I like, I haven't, buy, I never bought your truffles, but I always buy your bars. And then I'm like. What's this thing? It's not exactly a bar, and it's a little thick, and it's a little, and I'm squeezing, it's a little soft. What is going on? And then, was, oh, and then I remember, oh, like a we chunky. Were, we were making it and then yeah. dipping it. Yeah. But let's but let's look at what changed in all these years. Back in the day, chocolate bars were only for kids. Right? Kids bought a chocolate bar. Adults bought loose chocolates, bonbons, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. But whoever you want to give the credit to over the past ten or fifteen years. Now chocolate bars yeah. are a thing, yeah. and you'll spend yeah. five, six, twelve, fifteen dollars for right. a freaking chocolate bar. I, right? buy, I usually buy three bars at your store, and it's a thirty dollar bill every time. I'm like, whatever, it's great chocolate because yeah. you don't eat the. It's not like you eat the whole thing on the ride home. I mean, I'm like this guy that's like, whatever, like I'm watching my weight like a madman because at our age you kind of have to. And and it, like so, but the beautiful thing with these bars, you know, just a little piece. That's all you need. Yeah, so, done the meal, do the cigar, do a, just before. A little piece of chocolate flavor is like 15, 20 minutes long. Just beautiful thing. That's all you need. Yeah. I mean, that little bar lasts me like a week. Cause, and they're cut in little sections, and they're perfect. It's like great. So how's that not $10? It's yeah. delicious. Yeah, really. But, but, you have, but you as a food guy can appreciate it. A lot of people, you have to teach them about all this stuff. Yeah, so be, it's a thing. Right. And I, because I think the yeah, trouble is education. The, the trouble with chocolate in America, be, again, you know, because of Mars and Hershey, it's, it just became a cheap commodity. It was like anything else. Completely. You just yep. got used to paying a dollar for this waxy stuff that tastes yep. like, you know, something that reminded you remotely of chocolate. But if it, it, it was just associated with that's the price point, it's cheap. And nobody was carving out any other space. So, yeah. And there's still this blowback. I mean, it was that whole Mass Brothers kerfuffle this year with, oh, when is a chocolate bar worth $10? And I'm like, when they're fucking good they're worth ten dollars like what do you care if it's yeah. really good like why is that like a problem yeah because it's, it's, it's this american mentality that chocolate means cheap which is sad but again this is a generational thing you know and a lot of people get it and a lot of people i mean we see people now i'll have people come into me who are my age which is a little over 40 and and they'll say to me <laughs> you know this whole mass brothers thing what's up with it i said go buy a bar All right and then buy another one a week later. And after about six times, you'll answer the question yourself. Because I, in truth, I've done work for certain companies where they gave me their chocolate. And it's like my first thought was, this stuff sucks. But then after I've worked with it five or six times, like, I get it. Mm. Because Americans are not used to the acidic nature of unprocessed chocolate. Yeah. And you, don't, you, you can't even wrap your head around, it's not sweet, it's acidic. And then you appreciate that extra flavor profile. It's like, oh, I see. Mm. Now, I'm doing this my whole life, and it mm. took me a while to appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. I think that, that, that we see this in the wine world, too. Yeah, um, well, that, I mean, that's it. Exact, Actually, right. chocolate has, chemically, it has more flavor compounds than wine. It's just not approached that way. And I even think, like, the, apparently the wine industry wasn't, wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. It used to, you know, it was just like, oh, you, table wine, that's it. And then, and then they became uh, regional terroir, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the American tolerance for minerality and acidity wasn't there in the that's 90s. Right. So uh, when I talked to importers like Kermit Lynch and Neil Rosenthal, that were really the early guns, going to Europe, sourcing out small vignerol, bringing these wonderful wines to, to New York, primarily in the West Coast, where Kermit was based. You know, chefs would drink them and some, and we, we love this. And then the next line out of your mouth was, but I can't sell this. Because Americans were drinking over-oaked fucking Chardonnay from California. That yeah. was this flabby, shitty garbage. That's what, so the idea that it was acid in wine, and then you try to explain, if you bite an apple, what are you tasting? Think about it. Like, there's this balance in, an, in anything you're eating, any fruit, mm-hmm. of sweet and acid. And that's what makes, if it was just, if a teaspoon of sugar tastes good, we would just eat sugar. But that's disgusting. So you need acid, right? You need balance. Yeah. And it, it's there throughout nature. It's there in grapes. It's there in chocolate. It's there in cacao. But it's only up until now that people are basically acknowledging that terroir is not just about wine. Yeah. That it is about chocolate and every other agricultural agricultural product that there is. Michael Rogek, so do you have you have a good online business for people is that one way that people buy? Is that like something you've developed or well, you do it? Online is important. It's all good. The problem that we're all up against is the, the high cost of shipping. shipping yeah. Let's be honest about it. Yeah. I mean 
they, they're happy to pay the price of my chocolate. Then they call me up. What do you mean it's $18 to ship it to Manhattan? Right. right. Amazon, it's free. I, I said, well, okay. Can I tell you? We all have to pay for it. Are you... Are you in any retail stores in the city? Are you in like Economy Candy or any of those? I'm not those supposed guys? to say who I sell to. Okay, because so they all sell it as their own. Okay, whoever I sell to. All right, but all right. Uh, you'll see those Joe Mart chocolate bars around. Okay, J O M A R T. You got it. It's worth the air freight, man. JoeMartChocolates.com. Guys, guys, he's the shit. And fine and raw. Come out here to the Morgan Stop in Williamsburg. Where else can we get? Is that the only place we can buy your stuff? Uh, no, you, you get a bunch of places. Okay, yeah. Yeah, most of the Whole Foods in the city, Dean DeLuca. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, we're, we're stretching out to the West Coast as well. And But, I mean, mo- most of the, the good cheese shops and specialty food stores and uh, those kinds of places, were, yeah, interesting places. Daniel Sklar, that's who you hear talking. And I have to mention, talk about, forget the chocolate shit, because you're killing with that. This mofo swam the English Channel. I mean, that's just crazy. I can't get that in my I think about that almost every day. <laughs> yeah. Swam the English Channel. No <laughs> few people swam the English Channel. This guy swam the English Channel. That's like insane. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of swimmers that would even think about that to do what you got to be out of your mind. How many hours? Ten? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah, eleven and change. And freaking icy cold water, man yeah. choppy. Yeah, you start in the dark and yeah. the dark. Yeah, you, 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 we started at 1 a.m. That's just terrifying. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. That's nuts. All right, we've burned up an hour. Michael Rogak, always a pleasure, brother. Cool. Daniel, pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, Stay likewise. tuned next week. Next week, the whole show's wine. I have to warn everybody. If you're not into wine, don't listen. I've got, um, who do I have on? It's, the whole show's wine. I've got producers coming in from Napa. Oh, and I've got Alice Firing, who I love. Alice has been an evangelist of natural wines forever. She's just coming back the day before. I hope she's going to make the show from the Republic of Georgia, where kind of winemaking started. So if you like wine, tune in next week. If you don't, see you later. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.